I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 18. And uh, we're beginning this morning in verse 18. It's a story that uh, we're all pretty familiar with. And uh, yet there's some insight to be gained here. There's always insight to be gained in the Scriptures. Uh, Every time you uh, open the Bible, if you're paying attention... Uh, there's probably something new that you haven't seen before and the Holy Spirit wants to make known to you. So we're going to trust that that happens and that uh, for those of you very familiar with this, that you'll find uh, kind of a new insight uh, into that this morning. Uh, I'd like to invite you to follow along as I read the passage from the New American Standard Bible. A ruler questioned him saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young man, the ruler, said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, because he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that he said. Have you ever wondered how to ask the question of someone, what must I do to have eternal life? Another way of putting it, and uh, for those of you that may have somewhere along the line uh, taken evangelism explosion training, you perhaps uh, remember that methodology uh, popularized by uh, Dr. James Kennedy down in uh, Florida. The question is, uh, what can I do to go to heaven? And uh, as he puts it, the, the diagnostic question is, if you were to stand before God and he were to say to you, 
Why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? How would you respond to that question? That really goes to the crux of the matter, because it makes us think about that upon which we are basing our hope of making the cut, so to speak, and finding ourselves spending eternity with God or not. In this passage, a wealthy ruler asks the question. He poses to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins to give us some immediate insight into the answer to the question when he comes right back at him and says, Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. That, that is a profound response because it begins to penetrate this man's mind and understanding to evaluate his criteria for goodness. He's looking at Jesus. As far as he knows... Jesus is simply a gifted rabbi. I'm quite sure that he does not perceive him to be the incarnate Son of God. If he did, he would have more insight than the disciples. And so he's looking at him as another man who is a teacher and a gifted rabbi, but as far as he knows, uh, merely another human being. And he asks the question, uh, or he makes the statement, Good master. And Jesus says, what is your criteria for goodness? It's a very perceptive question because the Scripture answers it quite thoroughly. If we look at some of the Scripture passages that address it, Isaiah uh, 53, verse 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Notice the words, all, each, and all. No one is left out of that verse. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And and so Isaiah uh, categorizes the entire human race as being on a path away from God. Jeremiah similarly poses the question, Uh, The heart of man is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The essence of Jeremiah's penetrating question is, none of us can fully comprehend the depths of our own depravity. You know, it is said of Hitler's Germany and the Holocaust and all of the... um, Horrible, truly mind-boggling things that were done uh, to, to the Jewish people that the, the most frightening and, and scary reality when finally the war was over and many of those who perpetrated these horrible atrocities were brought to trial was not that they were monsters, that they were evil, hideous people who who uh, kind of exuded wickedness when they walked into the room. The thing that was so astounding was they were ordinary, normal people, just like those 
in the jury boxes and judges' seats and prosecutors' tables. They were no different from the rest of us. But they had opportunity, without the rule of law, to do whatever they wanted to other people. And as time went along and rationalism of one thing after another began to set in, they descended to the depths of atrocities and cruelty that we find hard to imagine. But it lies in your heart. And it is possible for you, as it is for me. And Jeremiah poses that question when he says, the heart of man is is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can fathom its depths of depravity? Finally, Paul in Romans chapter 3 kind of seals the deal as he quotes a number of Old Testament passages saying to us, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. I want to stop right there for a moment and just pause on that none who seeks for God. So many times we we think we see people looking for God. But the Scripture says we love Him because He first loved us. The Scripture says it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to seek and to save and to bring the world into conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. If someone is looking for God, it's because God is already knocking on the door of their heart. No one on their own initiative seeks out the true and living God because they desire Him. They may seek a God, and often do, but the Scripture says there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving The poison of asp or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their paths. And the path of peace they did not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the description of humanity. And friends, no one is excluded from the description. It includes every living person, however young, however old, man or woman, it doesn't matter. Every human being is in this condition. So Jesus poses the question, why do you call me good? The only one good is God. That should have been a hint for this wealthy ruler, (laughs) He should have already begun to think, well, wait a minute. But Jesus begins to drive home the message. And the message is, you've heard the commandments. And he begins to recite them. And the young man actually interrupts him. And he says, wait a minute, I know these. All of these I have kept from my youth up. One of the delusions that uh, the the Jewish people and, and many other people live under is that they can actually keep the Ten Commandments. 
The Apostle Paul writes his own testimony in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, and, and he says, uh, as touching the law, well, he says this to the Philippians, as touching the law found blameless, and yet he confesses that as he looked at the outward evidence of the law, the, the, the face value, if you please, he looked at that and he said, well, okay, um, stealing means taking something that doesn't belong to me. Surely I can keep from doing that. Um, you should read sometime, if you, you, I'm sure you can find this on the internet for free, uh, find John Wesley's uh, uh, expositions of the Ten Commandments as he goes into great detail about what it means. He talks about things like borrowing your neighbor's tool and not returning it in a timely fashion and thereby stealing uh, from your neighbor um, his ability uh, to utilize that tool. He talks about showing up late for appointments where you're stealing someone else's time. And he goes into great detail about things that we just never think about. But uh, you, whether you take it as far as Wesley or not, many people look at the Ten Commandments quite superficially and they think, I can manage this. But the Apostle Paul said, when it came to coveting, that's not an external action. That's not an outward behavior. That's something that goes on in my mind. When I want something that someone else has, whether it's position or prestige or power or possessions, whatever it might be, uh, the Apostle Paul said, that's the one that tripped me up. Because while I could keep the window dressing on my life looking pretty good, I could not stop desiring what other people had. Paul was a driven man, and he gives us some insight into his character. I mean, when you look at his intelligence and his brilliance and all the ways he studied and, and the hoops he jumped through and the accomplishments that he sought after, uh, you, you recognize that he was driven by something inside of him to be something that he admired and wanted. And I don't know what he was referring to exactly, but Paul recognized when the Scripture says, you shall not covet, that he was guilty. And so one of the most effective ways of helping another person to understand their need for salvation is to bring them to an awareness that they have not kept the commandments. Um, there's a fellow that's got a uh, gospel uh, presentation methodology out uh, that basically says the best way to win a person to Christ is to preach the law. And what he means by that is to simply explain to that person the requirements of Scripture according to the Ten Commandments. And if you do a good job of explaining the Ten Commandments, uh, everyone will eventually come to the realization that they have not kept them. We might theoretically presume that it perhaps is possible to be saved by keeping the commandments. And I suppose at some level you might make an argument that that's true. But here's the reality we start out in the negative. The Scripture says we are born in iniquity. In sin, we are conceived. 
It's not talking about the sex act. It's talking about the fact that our mother and our father were sinners and they passed it along. And that we're born with a, with a minus sign in front of our moral character. And from birth on, we begin to follow a rebellious nature that leads us against the law. And the consequence is that the more someone in our life says no, the more we want to shake our fist and say yes. I want to do what I want to do. In fact, one of the quickest ways to get a child to disobey is to prohibit something. Therefore, a word to the wise, don't prohibit what isn't significant. (laughs) Save save your prohibition for what counts, because they're going to rise up against it. It's in us to want to, to go against the rules. It's kind of hardwired. And those of you that happen to be rules keepers, don't break your arm patting your back yet, okay? Um, you, you have a different thing driving you. And it, it's just as insidious uh, because you have stuff going on inside of you that makes you want to be compliant for other reasons too. Um, you know, you got to get Jesus to get all that stuff straightened out. I'm not going into all that psychology right now. But, um, you know, it's necessary for us to see ourselves as sinners in order to see that we have a need for a Savior. In fact, I propose to you that it is not possible to come to Christ truly until you've come to see your sin clearly. There has to be an awareness of need. You have to be persuaded that you have missed the mark that you are falling short, that you're going to not pass the judgment and that you deserve hell before you come to the reality that you need to be saved and that that salvation, that rescue, that redemption is going to come from somewhere beyond yourself. So what happened to this wealthy ruler? Jesus attempts to preach the law to him. You know the commandments. And he interrupts and says, That's easy. I've kept all of those. From my childhood I've kept those. And so Jesus does the next thing. He begins to peel back the layer. And he starts, interestingly enough, with the very first commandment. You know what that is, right? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first one. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And as Jesus... uh, goes to the heart of the matter with this wealthy ruler, he says, there's only one thing lacking. Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And then you will have eternal life. 
Now, a lot of people read that scripture and they totally misunderstand it. They think that Jesus is making a carte blanche statement to every person on the planet. In order to be saved, you have to give up everything. You have to sell all that you own. You have to literally liquidate your possessions and give them away and and, and go and and, uh, live a life of uh, austerity and poverty. Okay, that is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, what Jesus is doing here is he's picking the first commandment, and we could start anywhere, but he's picking the first one because this happened to particularly hit the nail on the head with this wealthy ruler. He picks the first commandment and he begins to go beneath the surface to point out to him that he has an attitude problem that is equivalent to idolatry. This wealthy man worshipped his money. He was very rich. He had inherited it perhaps. He had worked hard at it. He had accumulated wealth. He had built up his accounts. He had stockpiled riches. He had invested in things. And he was very wealthy. And that is what he lived for. While he gave outward lip service to all the things of Judaism, he was undoubtedly faithful in the synagogue. He might even have been a significant contributor to the synagogue. He had probably uh, made many charitable contributions uh, in the name of God. He had done a lot of things to assuage his conscience, and to vindicate his righteousness. But the one thing he could not do was give up his passion to make money and to enjoy wealth. That was what drove his life. That was his ambition. That was where he worshipped. And what Jesus was saying to him is, You may not realize it, but you are an idolater. You have another God. He is before me. He occupies first place in your life. You bow before the altar of gold. And you worship the dollar. And in order to deal with that attitude of your heart, You can have no other gods before God. You need to turn away from your wealth and enthrone God as the Lord and Master of your life. Wow. That hit hard. That really slammed this young man. He had every desire to want to know that he could go to heaven and live eternally in God's presence. And now he discovers that he's an idolater and it will require turning away from his wealth and purging it out of his life in order to make God number one. Friends, it doesn't matter which commandment you stumble over. You may have a different one. You may struggle principally with some other commandment. 
that may be the one that occupies your focus and attention. You may be like Paul and you struggle with covetousness or, or you struggle with lust or, or you struggle with anger and, and hatred in your heart, which Jesus says is equivalent to murder because it's the seed and root of the tree that be, results in murder. You may have other things going on inside of you that are your problem issues. But the Scripture teaches plainly that if you have broken one commandment, you've broken them all. Imagine a ruler that is uh, ten centimeters long, each one representing a commandment. Is the ruler just as broken if it's broken at number eight, as it is if it's broken at number five or number one, it's still a broken ruler. It's broken and inadequate and falls short of the purpose because it doesn't matter where you fail. The Scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The problem with wealth and and the problem with Uh, Anything else is that salvation and eternal life require absolute surrender. It doesn't matter what point you're struggling with. It doesn't matter where the crux of the issue is in your life. Until you come to the realization that you have come short of God's glory, you have failed the test, and you're willing to turn from it, in brokenness and genuine repentance and full surrender, Jesus says it's not possible to have eternal life. He wasn't telling the young man, uh, you need to sell what you have and take a vow of poverty to be saved, as if that's how you could earn salvation. He was saying to him, you have to make me Lord. You have to enthrone God as the king of your life, and and that will demonstrate your repentance. And when you've done that, you will be free to serve me alone. It requires total surrender. We have to come to a place in our lives where we give everything over to God. There's always discussion, and those of you who have been around a while, you know that I have frequently talked about the, quote, lordship salvation and and all of those kinds of things, and there's all kinds of struggle and debate, and, you know, uh, do you have to make Jesus Lord to be saved, and what about uh, salvation versus discipleship, and what about carnal Christians and spiritual Christians, and how does all that fit? Uh, let me make it simple, okay? You don't have to, to get into all of those details and and try to sort out all of those little picky points. It's very, very simple. When you come to the place that you have recognized that you are a sinner, however the Holy Spirit has brought you to that conviction, and has revealed clearly to you by name the ways in which you have offended God, That may be a different list. In fact, it probably will be a different list for every person. And by the way, it won't be a complete list. Thank God. He does not, in one blink of an eye, show us the depths of our own heart and name them all. We would all 
be overwhelmed and, and die of shock. God is very gracious to get to the crux of the matter by addressing the key points in our lives and revealing to us our sinful departure from the will of God and convincing us that we have sinned and we deserve hell. That is important to happen when that moment comes. Your only choice is to walk away or to totally submit. To surrender by saying, yes, Lord, I agree with you. That is true of me. And with all my heart and with all of my understanding in this moment, I give these things up. And I turn from them. And I turn to you. And I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. And I will follow you the rest of my life. Anything short of that is not going to result in a new birth. It requires a transformation. God gives the grace for repentance. You can't claim That for yourself even. God gives the grace to repent. It's a gift. He gives you the capacity to turn from your sin. He invites you to come to Him naked and undone and broken and in a disastrous mess and to yield yourself to Him to to redeem, to repair, to rebuild, to restore. And in that moment, you have got to be willing to say yes to Him and no to your own ways. Down the road, you may learn that there are some other issues. As you begin to walk with Him, He will reveal to you new things. If you have truly been born again and submitted uh, to the Holy Spirit of God in His uh, indwelling, and those things begin to arise... You will find new decisions. And as you come upon them, other things will happen. You will either agree with Him and move on in triumph, or you will have a fight with Him and kind of stalemate for a while. But there's no such thing as a Christian who is unfettered and completely blissful in the midst of their sin. Because the Holy Spirit of God is not going to give you rest. He's going to keep pecking away. He's living in there. You're taking Him into whatever that is. He's going to let you know about it. And so, that process begins. And we can talk about all kinds of things. But at the moment of salvation, there has to be absolute surrender. The wealthy young man walked away. So sad. You know, and, and, the, and the reality of that is that Jesus let him go. We have a hard time with that. We want to, to pull the punch. You know, we, we may swing a good, you know, a good uppercut, but just before impact, we want to We want to back off a little bit and give people a break. Jesus drove straight home 
to the heart of the matter. And he did not back down. Because nothing less will do. And this man looked at his money in his mind. And he looked at eternal life. And he said to himself, money is more important. Jesus has asked the question, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? But this man was willing to make the trade. And Jesus let him go. Sometimes we're so desperate to make a convert that we... we uh, you know, finagle around and try to make it easy. And, and, and then we see lives that are not transformed. I had Claudia read 2 Corinthians 5, the passage, because if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has been made new. If that has not happened... If there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, if there's no love for God in your heart, if there's no transformation, if there's no sorrow for sin, if there's no hunger for fellowship with God and with His people, if you're completely indifferent to His Word and, and to prayer, and, and there's nothing changed about you, you've got to go back and examine the decision. It's somehow defective. You've missed something. And when we try to pull the punch and make it easy for people to pray the sinner's prayer, we may make an intellectual uh, convert, but we have not seen the transformation of the heart. We have to be willing, as God is willing, to let people choose the broad way. And if it breaks your heart, it just means that you are beginning to appreciate the heart of God that is broken for a lost world. It breaks His heart. But He will not force people to come to the kingdom. It has to be a surrender and an acceptance. The disciples examined all of this and they said, Wow, this is impossible. How can this possibly be? There's no way anybody can be saved. Jesus said, well, to be perfectly honest with you fellows, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You can read commentators that try to finagle around that and talk about a certain gate in Jerusalem where the camels had to get down on their knees. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus meant. The disciples got it then who can be saved? You can't put a camel through a, a, a sewing needle's eye. Well, you're right. <laughs> you got it. With man, this is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. They're exactly right. We can never measure up. There is no way we can cut the, cut the mark. But God makes it possible. And Jesus foreshadows His atonement as He begins to unveil for the disciples that He's going to Jerusalem to fulfill the calling and purposes 
that will result in the forgiveness of our sin and in His resurrection in bringing us to new life. And He holds forth that with God, a new birth, a death to the old self, and a resurrection to a brand new life is impossible for those who will trust Him and receive Him by faith. I mentioned in my prayer as we began, and I think now there are a few categories that we need to examine. Um, One of two things is true of you this morning. You have come to that decision at some point in your life where you have turned from your sin, repented of it, and turned to Jesus Christ. And whether you can point to the day or the time is not so important as that you know that at some point in your life that encounter occurred and you have made that decision. And in your heart, there is 100% agreement with what I've been saying. And you know for sure today that if you were to die this moment and stand before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer you would have is because I have put my faith and trust in the finished work of my Savior, Jesus Christ, and I am trusting Him for forgiveness and life eternal. And you, and you know that. The other category this morning is that some of you may be here and you're searching your memory banks and you can't remember ever making that decision. It's never been as clear to you before. You realize that something was missing when you responded emotionally to an altar call. Somebody showed a picture of the tribulation when you were 12 years old and showed you pictures of people getting beheaded and in fear you went forward to be rescued from the guillotine. But in reality, there was never a true transformation of your heart. You responded out of fear, not out of repentance. You did not turn to Him as Lord. You just begged to avoid the pain of persecution. And so, or some other reason. Or or you grew up in church and it always kind of sounded good, but there's never been the moment. When you made the decision. Friends, the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. I'm asking as I'm speaking right now that the Holy Spirit will touch your heart and put his finger on some sin that exposes your problem. To name it for you. And as he does so, To make you aware of the fact that unless you have repented and turned to Him, there's no hope of life eternal. But He loves you, and He wants you to make the right choice, and He gives you the power of His Holy Spirit to do so. If you're in that group this morning, if you're that person, 
Will you this moment, while I'm speaking, say, Lord, I have come to realize in this moment that I have sinned, that I deserve hell, and I need a Savior, and I turn my heart and life over to you now. Forgive me, and be my Lord and Master. I want to follow you all the rest of my life. We have in this passage a clear way to share the message of Jesus Christ. We have Jesus' own guidance for presenting the good news. He's given it to us with no uncertain terms. Can you go out and share the message of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit with such clarity? We're not talking about lordship stuff, salvation, work salvation, or anything like that. We're just simply talking about coming to a place of recognizing your need for a Savior and opening your heart, turning from sin, and turning to Christ. What's His message to you today? Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that as you go across this room, and as you speak to every person, perhaps you're bringing to mind someone that needs a clear explanation of the good news. And you've given them now today the necessary understanding to present it. Perhaps there's someone here today who realizes they have not made that pivotal decision Will you provide your grace and mercy to save and to be saved? Accomplish your will in our hearts and lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.